I don't know who you are, young lady, but you certainly know how to handle yourself well. Batman! Batgirl? Batgirl? Batgirl! Yes, Batgirl! Biff Bam Pal. This is Batman Land. Our purpose here is quite serious. Each week we chat about the 1960s Batman TV show. We might as well get a few laughs out of it. We discuss the episodes that aired this week on SBS Vice Land. My name is Dan Barrett. I work on an SBS site here called The Guide. And joining me for this bold new era of Batman is a librarian by day, red-wigged Batman podcaster by night. It's Nick Bassine. I'm a librarian, but I can afford a very nice apartment in the middle of town. Yeah, with a rotating wall. Yeah, which I built myself. And what do you put on the other side of your wall? Um, it's... Um, yes, Nick? It's where I play Dungeons and Dragons. Okay. Are, are you the Dragon Master? I'm the um, the Goblin Queen. Okay. Story checks out. Yeah. All that waddling around you do must have scrambled your brains. Don't be cocky. <laughs> Nick, we are in a bold new era of Batman. Yes. This is season three of the show. Very exciting. Everything's changed. Do you think people are aware that there are three seasons of this show? No. No one knows what went on in this TV show. They don't know that in season three, with flagging ratings, they decided they were going to overhaul the entire show. Gone are the two-part episodes that we've known the show for at this point. And in its place now, we've got Batgirl coming in. We've got half-hour episodes. We've got an entirely new tones of the show. It feels very different. It does. And I was saying this to you. I don't think you'd picked up on it, but... I watched both episodes of this. It is a much cheaper looking show than it had been. Yeah, I'm not seeing it. I don't get it. So previously there were a lot more exterior shots where they were out filming. Here you've got the bit of footage of her coming out of her building on the Batgirl cycle. Okay, but that's going to be stock footage that they use a whole bunch of times throughout the season. And then there was another shot with the Penguin and he was driving up a street along the main uh, Warner Brothers set where he was just going on the same streets we usually see. Outside of that, there was no other exteriors. In either episode. Yeah, right. But didn't they um, rent out Madison Square Garden to shoot that boxing uh, scene? Uh, Look, you may think that, but much (laughs) like the rest of all the other sets, there's very little set design going on with most of the sets. It's all lots of black backgrounds. Black box, yeah. Yeah, and then there's like a few sort of carefully positioned bits of set dressing around. I'm sure we'll get to it, but that boxing ring uh, scene looked like it was an improv theater. (laughs) Look, it did. And have you noticed, and I could probably talk about this later, but... I just need to get this out in the open right yeah, now. Yeah, get it off your chest. In the two episodes we just watched, at no point does Robin ever talk to Batgirl. What? And so my theory going into this season is that between seasons two and three, Robin has in fact been killed because <laughs> everyone talks to Batgirl within this, but I only saw Batman talking to Robin. I didn't see Robin interacting with anybody else. I could be wrong. But I don't recall anyone talking to him. So I'm wondering if it's like a sixth sense of a thing where Batman's the only one I can see Robin And then at the end of season three, we find out that Robin's been dead this whole time. Yeah. Or Bat... No, Robin would be the No, because people are talking to Batman. Like, he's engaging. But Robin's just off the side saying, gee willikers, and that's about it. Listen, hopefully you haven't spoiled it for everybody out there, because that would be quite a twist. Yeah, so this is my theory going into the season. But anyway, Nick, the important thing to realize is structurally, these are different now. The half-hour episodes... And there's an interesting gimmick at the end of every half hour where the villain for next week's episode makes an appearance. And so the episodes more or less connect into one another. Right. So we've got this. Usually at the beginning of this episode, I can't remember what's gone on in the episode. This week I remember. I'm completely across it. Fantastic. But I'm concerned other people aren't going to remember. So for the sake of continuity of this podcast, can you please remind people what happened in not just the first storyline of the show, Nick, but both stories? Okay, so Barbara Gordon, who works at the library, gets a call from her father, the incompetent Commissioner Gordon. Oh, 
Commissioner Gordon, how are you? He tells her that she's twice as pretty as she was when she went to college and that Bruce Wayne is going to be super into it. On her way home, she's kidnapped by the Penguin. You've got Barbara, you feathered fiend. Who announces that they're getting married in the newspaper. We're going to make her the happiest girl in Gotham City. Penguin threatens to murder Commissioner Gordon. If she doesn't marry him, she agrees. Alfred meets with a minister about a church supper and gets kidnapped by the Penguin's henchman. Move it, Breach. Because he thinks he's a minister and he's going to marry Barbara and the Penguin. Holy complications. Barbara escapes, puts on a purple Batgirl outfit. Is she Batgirl? She is. You mustn't reveal my secret. She helps Batman and Robin fight Penguin and his goons, but they get gassed and captured anyway, so she has to chase after them on her motorcycle. She and Alfred beat the hell out of the Penguin and his henchmen. That was a very brave thing to do, Alfred. And rescue Batman and Robin. She helped us out of a dire dilemma. Dick gets his driver's license and Bruce gives him a car. Commissioner Gordon calls the Riddler. Good heavens, the Riddler! Very good! And then on to the next episode, the Riddler is fixing boxing fights and kidnapping boxers. He what? He's using someone called Siren to hypnotize men, but it doesn't work on Batgirl. She's not a man. Riddler calls Batman a coward, challenges him to a boxing match. Batman puts on boxer shorts and faces Riddler in the boxing ring. <laughs> Batman can't move. Batgirl saves him. Riddler runs away. Batman takes off the boxer shorts, and he and Robin fight Riddler and his goons along with Batgirl. Siren hypnotizes Commissioner Gordon. And the Vietnam War raged on. Nick, we're at the beginning of a whole new vibe of the show. How do you feel about this current incarnation of the Batman show? Well, I haven't seen as many episodes as you have, but having seen many of them, I've watched a lot of Batman yeah, in the last few months. A lot more than I ever thought I would have. I'm sure I've seen more than I did as a child. Mm. I have to say that Batgirl is instantly invigorating. She really is, isn't she? She's got a great presence. It's a goofy outfit, the purple sparkly thing, but I like it. And just having somebody else, a totally different kind of hero. Now, I don't normally espouse the idea that changes character to a woman. Well, actually, maybe I do. Anyway, what I'm thinking is- Like gender changing characters. Yeah, and just doing that yeah. and that it that fixes a problem or whatever. But maybe I'm coming around to this idea where it's, I mean, if, if it was uh, Nightwing, for example, I'm not sure it would have been as interesting. But because it's Batgirl, she's got a different energy, and it's and it's a female energy, and it's it's a lot of fun. I was glad for the chance to join in the fun. Look, I tend to agree, and I actually have a real issue with the idea that, hey, to bring female characters into something, we need to take the traditional male superhero lead and just make it a female version of it. So things like, right. and you see it a lot in comics. So, you know, you've got your Batwoman, Batgirl, you got Supergirl, Superwoman. She-Hulk. Um, She-Hulk. Who else have you got there? Uh, there's a Spider-Woman at one point. You know, they tend to do this a lot. And I kind of would just prefer it if there was a female character with their own agency being introduced into these shows. Yeah. Like the integrity of it, I think is so much stronger. And also, I mean, I'd feel a little bit uh, put off as a young girl if suddenly all I've got is Batgirl. Like it's not even Batwoman. It's just kind of this sort of uh, minimized yes. presence. Agreed. But in, in the absence of In the that. absence. And Batgirl's great. I really love this character. Wow. Tonight seems to be my night for gentlemen callers. Yeah. Yvonne Craig is pretty good. She's um, tough, sly. Yeah. All the things you want in a superhero. So, yeah, I mean, despite the fact this is only a half hour episode for story one that we're talking about this yeah. week, uh, I thought maybe we could actually go a little bit deeper into some of the people in this. So, Yvonne Craig is new to the show. Yes. Uh, do you know Yvonne Craig from anything? Wasn't she in Flipper? <laughs> she was not in Flipper. 
And I presume you're talking about the 60s flipper and not the Jessica Alba 1990s flipper. Yeah, I mean the Jessica Alba one. Of course. No, oh, she- wait, wait, wait. Yvonne Craig is in, um, mm. they did a series of Olivia, the yeah. children's book. Yeah, so she was a voice on that, which is a Nickelodeon show, I believe. I don't know. I just found out today. Okay. I didn't, I've never seen it. That was her most recent credit on IMDb. It was nice you scrolled below that, Nick. <laughs> uh, but Yvonne Craig, pre-Batman. So she started acting on screen in 1957. Uh, it was in a show called 18 and Anxious. No idea what that was. I can relate. I don't know if she was a main actress. I don't know if she was 18 and or Anxious, but she was in that program. Do you think it was a, a buddy cop show where somebody's <laughs> last name was 18? The yeah, one was anxious. anxious. Yeah, that's what it sounds like to me. I assume that's what was going on. Like Rizzoli and Isles. Yeah. You know, maybe TV's greatest show. Franklin and Bash. I liked Franklin, not so much Bash. But pre-Batman, she had a career basically of single guest star roles in a whole bunch of shows. Oh, she has the distinction of maybe the longest IMDb that I've ever seen. It's super long. She's been in everything. Yeah, because all she was doing was guest star roles. Yeah. So she's been in episodes of Perry Mason, Gidget, Philip Marlowe, which was, I guess, a series based on the Long Raymond Sleep? Chandler, yeah, like the Raymond Chandler uh, book. Yeah. Long Sleep? The big, big Sleep. Big Sleep. Big Sleep. Uh, she was in that. Uh, the Barbara Stanwyck show. She did six episodes on The Many Loves of Dobie Gillis. Uh, she did a 77 Sunset Strip. Can I say, part of, part of the joy of doing this show is finding out, is just looking into all of these old shows and what people watched in the 60s or, or just around that time. The Barbara Stanwyck show? Apparently she How had a show just, named Barbara. Just give her a show? She's a movie star. Give her a show. Yeah. They don't do that with big movie stars anymore. Although there was the Gina Davis show. Chevy, Moving on. The Chevy Chase show. Was it called the Chevy Chase show? I think so. It wasn't just like Chevy? Oh, I don't know. Who Either knows? Way. I mean, we could look it up, but heaven forbid we do that. She did some Macau's Navy, Doctor Kildare, The Man from Uncle, My Favorite Martian, Big Valley, The Wild Wild West, Ben Casey, My Three Sons, and these are just the shows that people remember today. She was at a whole yeah, lot of TV yeah, there in those were a lot ten that years. I did not recognize. So apparently, the year that she got Batman, she'd done that just off four different failed pilots that she'd been in. Okay. Okay. So she was actually excited to be joining a show that was established, and she knew that she wouldn't have to stress about whether the show was being picked up or not. She could actually be part of the show. So for her, being in Batman was a huge deal, despite the fact the show wasn't a rating success that it was. Well, she um, was doing it for the kids. Oh, well, obviously. Now, there's a couple of quotes from her which are kind of interesting, which is her talking about her as a female hero on screen. She didn't want to be seen sort of doing karate and like hitting people like more than three times. And I thought like, that's a bit weird. And she's talking about the fact that these people aren't seen as feminine if you're doing that. Oh. And she really wanted to make sure she was seen as a feminine woman on screen. Because unladylike. Very much so. So when you watch the action sequences with her, she's doing a lot of kicks. Yes, high kicks. High kicks. And she's a former dancer. So that's kind of just part yeah. of, yeah. Uh, she was in a whole bunch of movies. So she's like in like Flint. Yes, I yeah. saw that. Uh, she's in the Frankie Avalon film Ski Party. That's my favorite movie of all time. She's in two Elvis Presley movies. Oh. That happened at the World Fair and Kissing Cousins. And the reason why she's in two of them, she dated Elvis for quite a considerable while. What? Yeah. Now, apparently when she was cast in the first film and met Elvis, she didn't actually know who he was. She didn't know who he was? Apparently. But it escaped her. Come on, Yvonne. <laughs> but anyway, so she dated Elvis for a while. There's a really interesting autobiography she's released. I haven't read it, but I'm desperate to track it down. 
But she's got all these stories from being in Hollywood and the various people she was associated with. So she dated Elvis for a while. So like there's Elvis stories in there. Apparently she was put up for six months by Howard Hughes at the Chateau Marmont and she never met him. He just took a liking to her at some point. She never got introduced to him. He just paid for her. So she came home one day and found that everything had been removed from her apartment, her stuff, her pets, all gone. It's at the chateau. So she lives there for six months. And then eventually things just got too creepy for her. So she just got out of there. That sounds like a Howard Hughes move. (laughs) Very much so. There's a really great story about, because she was a ballet dancer and she's used to performing in ballet. The one thing you do as a ballet dancer is you don't have your back to the audience. You always face frontwards. In my years as a ballet dancer, yes, that is. As you would know. Yeah. But apparently when she first started appearing on screen and doing auditions, she kept on approaching it like she's a ballet dancer and would always be facing the front and would always step away backwards. Like she just walk backwards in the direction she's going. Right. Until she's called out and she realized how silly she was being. But yeah, like just little cute stories like that. When was her autobiography from? Uh, So it came out in 2000. You can't buy it on Amazon anymore as a new printing. Uh, they're there for like 96 bucks. Oh, wow. I did some research today. Yeah. Uh, there's no audio book of it. I think there's some PDFs floating around, so you can probably track it down. But from what I've read about this autobiography, it sounds like she had a heck of a life. Yeah, right. Post-Batman, she couldn't pick up like another ongoing series. So her career for like the next 10 years went back to what she was doing pre-Batman. So it's a whole lot of guest spots on a whole lot of shows that you know. Yeah. And she was doing that. Um, after about 10 years of that, like she looked at her life and she's like, I'm not getting anywhere. It's not really working out for me. So she went and got a real estate license. Uh, she became quite successful as a commercial real estate agent. And then after that, and this is the weird thing, uh, she got involved with her sister in a company running theme-driven phone cards. What? Calling cards? So you know like those calling cards? Yeah. And they were themed in some way, I guess. And so she was selling those. Weird. It was quite possibly a very lucrative business. Well, there's so a sure. huge gap in her IMDb uh, profile. Yeah. So when you hit like the mid-70s, that's when she starts getting involved in real estate. And then like late in life, she came back, did a whole bunch of voice work. Yeah. So interesting. People that are part of what is deemed to be such an iconic show and they just kind of disappear. Yeah, look, absolutely. And so I find her to be, an inc- well, the Batgirl character entirely, to be just a fascinating addition to the Batman program. And we discussed this in last week's episode, but just that idea that they knew the ratings were flagging and they wanted to introduce the Batgirl character. So they laid the groundwork towards the end of last season, mentioned Barbara a couple of times. Yeah, she was and in college. She's here. But yeah, it just came from the fact they were looking at the ratings, they were diminishing, and they figured, you know, we're going to do something. Produced a pilot video halfway through the second season featuring Batgirl, as played by Von Craig. And you can find that video online if you're looking hard enough. Was this a character invented for the show, or was she in the comics? Okay, so it's more a character that came from the comics. So there was a character called Batgirl, and that was Bat-Girl. And so I think she was only in like one or two issues. But then the actual Batgirl character, the Barbara Gordon character... She was introduced in January 1967. Before that, she was an actual, just a female bat. Uh, no, <laughs> not the case. Okay. So you've got the Batgirl character introduced in 1967, but in January, this is September. Okay, so yeah. essentially the rumor has it, like the mythology of it, is that William Dozier, the executive producer of the show, went to DC Comics office, saw the drawings and designs for Batgirl and said, I want to introduce that into this TV show as well. Okay. So we're talking about two episodes today. We're talking about Enter Batgirl, Exit Penguin. This aired originally on the 14th of September, 1967. And Ring Around the Riddler, which aired the week later, because it only airs once a week now in the 67s, 
Uh, it's called Ring Around the Riddler, and that aired on the 21st of September, 1967. After Batgirl's um, presence, what was most uh, resonant for me was Burt Ward's new haircut. What was different about the haircut? Because it's much shorter and yeah. closer to the head, very nerdy, and also much more Adam West like. Now, we've been talking in the show a little bit, and we're going to definitely focus on this a bit later in the episode. Vietnam, like the war actually is raging on. Yes. We've been discussing in the show the idea that this show is actually kind of counter to a lot of the youth movements that were taking place at the yes, time. Yes, absolutely. It's completely counter to the counterculture, which was becoming mainstream. Right. So the idea of Robin getting a much shorter, sort of more military type haircut, yeah. that actually fits in well with what the show was, which is a very mainstream middle America program. It wouldn't surprise me at all if Dozier uh, or somebody had a chat with him about it and told him to get a haircut, you hippie. <laughs> I like how this episode opens with, it's not them sitting around a parlor with a crime that's taken place, but rather they're returning from having tangled with Catwoman and you've got like the sort yeah. of post-battle wrap up it's with totally Batman It's totally different. They yeah. never have never opened an episode that way, coming back from a battle or whatever. No. Yeah. And that, it's fun. I really like that. That was great. Yeah. Uh, we're introduced to Barbara Gordon. She's working at the Gotham City Public Library. Uh, she looks very mod. Yep. But she's excited because she's off to the opera with Bruce and Dick and her father and Chief O'Hara, and thus in the marriage of Figaro. And she's about to be conscripted into marriage with the Penguin. Yeah. Although you've got the incident where Commissioner Gordon is bringing Barbara along as the date for Bruce Wayne. Super creepy. I wasn't surprised uh, one bit because Commissioner Gordon is... Um, He's an incompetent creep. Yeah, because the thing with like Barbara Gordon is she just come back from college, so you assume that she's probably early 20s, like maybe 22, yeah. 23 uh, at most. Give her a few years or something before you start pimping your daughter out, Gordon. Yeah, but Bruce Wayne's a much older man. Much older. Yeah, but he is wealthy. <laughs> well. I hear he's a millionaire. Penguin, this is Bruce Wayne. Ah, the millionaire joy boy. This was the first time that I heard him referred to um, as a uh, joy boy. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard the phrase Joy Boy before. Yeah, I don't know what that means, but it was definitely disconcerting. So the Penguin makes his appearance. He kidnaps Barbara Gordon through the roof of the elevator, which struck me as a bit weird because, look, you look at Barbara Gordon, she looks like a slight young thing. We know she can handle herself because, you know, she's Batgirl. Right. But, like, you look at her and it's like, you don't look like you've really got a lot of, like, body strength. My henchman could probably kidnap you quite easily. Right. Why wouldn't they just kidnap her without like hiding in the roof of an elevator? Surely that's harder. I thought that coming through the roof of the elevator made it look like it had greater production value. A little bit. It gave it something. I was impressed. Yeah. Thought, well, how did they get the penguin up there <laughs> on the top of the elevator? Do you think it was just him up there or do you think like his six henchmen were up there as well? It could have been all of them. It, it reminded me, uh, very. it's very similar to the um, sequence in uh, Spider-Man Homecoming with the elevator. Same sort of production value. Yeah, it's exactly the same. Yeah. If I didn't know better, I'd think it's the exact same scene. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The newspaper, where they find out that the Penguin has intentions to marry Barbara Gordon. Is it the Gotham Times? Uh, it could be the Gotham Gazette. Let's call it the Gazette Times. Okay. Well, the Gazette Times has this marriage... Uh, it's in the society pages. Yeah. Announcement. Got, marriage announcement. Marriage announcement. Yeah. Sorry, it's been a while since I've dealt with newspapers. Yeah, well... Anyway, it's like late afternoon, early evening when they see this. You would think that someone would have seen this in the newspaper and maybe congratulated <laughs> Commissioner Gordon... Like, surely this shouldn't be the first time they've heard about it. 
Now, in fairness, maybe it wasn't as part of the morning edition, but it's come out because newspapers used to have multiple yeah. editions through a day. Maybe it is the later, like, afternoon edition, but surely someone would have told Commissioner Gordon that his daughter's featured in the society pages. So, yeah, he would have gotten a phone call. You would think so. Maybe even, like, the newspaper just checking to clarify that. Like, he's yeah. a prominent person. He's the commissioner of police. Now, obviously, the Penguin put that story in the paper, but wouldn't an editor sign off on his description as an upstanding member of uh, society rather than a super criminal who's Look, been in jail a lot? And former owner of a movie studio. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, he spent some time around Gotham. But the reason the Penguin's doing it is to gain immunity from prosecution by marrying into the family. And look, I'm not a legal scholar. You're not? No, no. I know that I made a few claims to start hosting this podcast. Don't you introduce yourself as a legal scholar on the Good Fight podcast? This isn't that podcast. <laughs> anyway, moving on, Nick. I'm not a legal scholar, but I don't think that's how the law works. I don't think that you can just suddenly marry into the family and then you're immune from all prosecution. I think in the, the 60s um, were a different time. Yeah. And I think there, were, there was a lot more leeway than you would expect. Hmm. I'm not entirely too sure on that one. There's not really much to talk about here. I kind of like that Alfred's in this new position now of having the confidence of Barbara Gordon, okay, and that he knows her secret, but he promises as a gentleman's gentleman not to tell anyone else they, about why that. Why would they put him in that position at the beginning? Why would they have someone know the secret at the beginning? Because I like that Batman and Robin don't know who she is. Yeah. But I like that Alfred does because it gives him a bit more agency and he's then required to do a few more things. I don't know. Felt Something felt fishy about that. I reckon let's go further into the season and see how you're feeling about it. Yeah, let's check back in later. Because yeah. this won't be the last time we hear about that. Now, the thing I was really struck with in this episode is that there's no real jokes in the episode in the way there usually is. Except right at the end where you've got the sequence where they've caught the penguin, it's all taken care of. Although really, also think about it in this episode... Batman and Robin are largely ineffective and do nothing in this episode. Batgirl and Alfred save the day. Yes. So they do nothing. There is no reason at all why Batman and Robin needs to even be in this episode. It's like Indiana Jones and a Lost Ark. That's right. Yeah, if you take that character out, it plays out exactly the same. Well, it's part of the natural devolution of Batman and Robin's relevancy in solving any of these crimes. Oh, they're a bit more relevant in the next one. I mean, Batman's boxing the Riddler. Oh my God, that whole, that boxing thing. Anyway, let's let's put a pin in that. We're going to come back to the boxing. But you got the final sequence, which has Bruce and Dick. Uh, Dick's now got his driver's license. They're leaving the DMV. Bruce reveals, hey, look, you know, I've bought this car for you. And interestingly, did you notice what sort of car it was? A, uh, it was a convertible. It's like kind. a red convertible, which looks exactly the same as the car that Dustin Hoffman's driving in The Graduate. What? I reckon it's the same sort of car, okay, purely because there's that story about how Burt Ward claims that he was up for that role in The Graduate, oh. but couldn't do it because he'd signed on to Batman, and so Dustin Hoffman had it instead. Uh, that sounds like you're reaching there. Look, this so is- So Burt Ward went to the producers and said, get me the car they used in The Graduate. I'll show those mo mother scratchers. Do you remember a few weeks ago, we had Bruce Lee appearing in the show? Yes. And everyone on the set thought it was hilarious that Bruce Lee had apparently scared Burt Ward because Burt Ward was talking about his karate prowess. Right. And then Bruce Lee, you know, started acting up and, you know, shenanigans were had on set. Yeah. I kind of wouldn't be entirely surprised if Burt Warden was making the claims about The Graduate and then suddenly the set like the set people just put the exact same car from The Graduate in the scene. Oh, just to mess with him, to, to troll him. Complete shenanigans. You know, there's one way to settle this. Burt Ward will not answer my phone calls. <laughs> Get on, come on the show, Ward. 
<laughs> yeah, we've thrown the gauntlet down. We need answers. Bruce Wayne, or rather Adam West in that scene, hilarious when Dick suggests that he can now drive the Batmobile. Yeah, and you can see slow he, down. Yeah, he's just like slowing that down entirely. And I think that Adam West gives an amazing line delivery there. Remember, this is not the Batmobile. Don't worry, Bruce. Highway safety is every citizen's prime responsibility. Outside of that, I don't think he's really given a lot to do in this first half hour. Uh, there was also a um, a thumbs up between Batman and Robin, which <laughs> I, I haven't seen until this episode. Very weird. Shall we talk about episode two, Nick? I have to say, I followed the second episode much less than I followed the first one. Yeah, I had the same problem as it's well. It's incomprehensible. Yeah, so this is the final appearance of the Riddler in the series, at least in terms you know of like a dedicated episode. I'm not sorry to see him go. There's a scene where he completely vanishes, and I kind of wish this is something that the Riddler had been doing regularly because it fits into that anarchic nature what, of the Riddler. Yeah, just be able to, you know. To disappear. Poof, vanish around a place. Is that what the Riddler does? Well, not really historically. I just kind of like that. It's kind of the shenanigans of, I don't know how he did it, but that's the riddle. I, I'm, I can't wait to not hear his, that uh, manic laughter anymore. You're done. So Frank Gorshin, who plays the Riddler in this episode, he was all the way through season one. He's in the very first episode of Batman. Yeah. Like he was the star of the first season. So the thing with Frank Gorshin is he was a very well-known comedian at the time. And he was seen as like one of the really cool hip people that they had involved in the program. Now, because he knew his worth, when it came to season two, he said, you know, pay me what I'm worth. They said no. And so he refused to be in the show. So throughout the second season, we've seen a whole bunch of episodes that were clearly meant to be Riddler episodes, but instead they put in characters like the Puzzler because Frank Gorshin wouldn't come back. Yeah, right. Eventually they give up and they just bring in John Aston as the Riddler. And so you've got him in the one episode in season two with the Riddler. But here we are, season three, they've brought Gorshin back. It's the final appearance of him. And it's kind of nice that they brought him back. But we don't see the Riddler again outside of a brief flash where you see the character, but it's played by someone that isn't a star of the episode. It's just some guy playing the Riddler. Uh, but you actually see Frank Gorshin come back as the Riddler in another TV show they made a few years later called Legends of the Superheroes. And yeah. I showed you those clips on YouTube. Um no, I don't think so. This is the thing set up where you've got all these superheroes like Captain Marvel was there. I think Superman's there and Batman and Robin. Batman and Robin as played by Burt Ward and Adam West because they didn't have much else going on in the late 70s. So these two TV specials and it was set up like a, a celebrity roast. But you got like villains and heroes and it's just terrible. It's like a oh, sketch show. Man. Yeah, it is dire. It sounds brutal. But you can find it all on YouTube and anyone who's watching the Batman show needs to go and watch this. Okay. It is something special. So Frank Gorshin comes back for that, which I think says something about where Frank Gorshin's career went. Cool guest star in this episode, James Brolin. Yes, very cool. Yeah, played Kid Gulliver. Uh, the boxer, yeah. Father of um, Josh Brolin. Yeah, father of Thanos himself. Yeah. He had a certain, brought a certain gravity to his um, 30 seconds or so screen time. So this is the third time that Brolin's been in a Batman TV show. Oh, really? Uh, once he was just a driver in a Catwoman episode. And then there's another time in a Catwoman episode where he's legitimately really funny. And it's him as a police officer and he's trying to ticket Batman because Batman's parked illegally. Anyway, that's a great sequence. And here I don't think they do much with Brolin, but it's kind of fun to see him. The big one is Joan Collins. Yeah. So she's a bit weird. So the way they structure the new episodes is you've got the villain at the end for a few seconds and then they're back for the next week. But she's like midway through the episode. Yeah, she's in it a few times because she's hypnotizing people with her siren song. Yeah. Um, you're a big Dynasty fan. 
Oh, look, I mean, you don't get a bigger Dynasty fan than I. Didn't they remake it they, also recently? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I think so. I think I may have watched some, some of it as well on Netflix. Um, I don't know what she was doing with herself. I guess she was just a peer doing small parts and this kind of things, and then she went into Dynasty in the 80s. Yeah, well, 1967, as far as, like, cult nerd shows go, is a big year for Ms. Collins. Because she'd appeared at the beginning of the year in a very classic Star Trek episode called The City on the Edge of Forever. Oh. Okay, which is an episode where they travel back in time to Depression era, like I think it's Chicago or New York. But anyway, Kirk falls in love with her and she dies at the end of the episode. Spoiler alert. Oh no. But yeah, like this is like one of the, like, the top five episodes of Star Trek that people will talk about all the time. Okay, why is that? Because it's the sad, tragic death of the Joan Collins character. Oh, all right. Yeah, people just love that character. So she appeared in that, and then she's in Batman at the end of this year. So it's a good year to be Joan Collins. Um, she was great. I thought she had a great presence. She carried herself. Maybe it's just uh, psychosomatic, because you know that she became a bigger star. But sometimes when you see the bigger stars back then, you can kind of see the you, potential. You can, can't you? Yeah, I think so. Now, on the complete opposite side of that scale, do you remember that scene where Barbara comes to the boxing venue and she's there to buy some tickets and then the cashier's freaked out because the Riddler's left a blinking box there? Yeah, the screaming, <laughs> the screaming uh, blinking box lady. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I'd like two seats for tomorrow. <laughs> Like, that is one hell of a performance. Yeah. Here's two things that may surprise you. Number one, the actress who played her, this is her only credit. Oh, that's so sad. Looking into the people that are on these, this show is so sad. But can I give you another fact where you'll go, wait a sec, this woman's amazing. The actress's name, Peggy Olsen. Right, potentially the uh, inspiration for the Mad Men character. Look, possibly. I'd be really curious to find out. So I did some general web research couldn't find anything, but maybe there's something there. What other guest stars did you notice? Uh, there's a guy named uh, Gil Perkins who played a character called Cauliflower, who I presume is one of the Riddler's goons. Right. Not really that interesting. He was a stuntman. He appeared in a bunch of things. He's got like a decent list of credits to his name, but he's actually an Australian guy. Oh. And in terms of establishing himself as an industry professional, he's the co-founder of the Stuntman's Association of Motion Pictures, which happened in 1960, and later he became the treasurer of the Screen Actors Guild from 1964 to 79. Oh, yeah. good on you. Yeah, exactly. Good on you, mate. Yeah. A couple of weird things in the episode. We saw the bat signal, which I don't think we saw at all during season two. Uh, we also see a wall climb with no celebrity cameo as Batman and Robin try getting into Barbara's apartment. There wasn't a wall climb. They were just kind of jumped up into the balcony, right? It's a wall climb. All right. And don't you think it's weird that when Batman climbed into the apartment, he didn't introduce himself to Barbara? Yeah, he just kind of knocked on the door. Yeah, I thought it'd be one of those classic scenes of going, oh, hi, and you are? And he'd be like, hi, ma'am, I'm Batman. In the Batman comics in the 60s, Yeah. you know, in, in my childhood, when I think of Batman, um, He's always, you know, Gordon looks one way, then he looks the other, and suddenly he's perched in the window. Yeah. Or like they're on rooftops and then he'll look the other way and Batman's just gone. Yeah. Which Batgirl does a bunch of times. Yeah. I was yeah. very um, uh, evocative. Yeah. Something about Batman's behavior in this episode. At one point he says he would not be called a coward. And it got me thinking that he's a little bit like Marty McFly when he gets called chicken. What did you call me, Griff? Chicken! McFly! Nobody calls me chicken. Yeah, very much like Marty McFly. I would think he would have been above that kind of baiting. Uh, the boxing scene, 
There was just a lot going on. First of all, it, it felt like, as discussed, an improv theater, not mm. Gotham Square Garden. Oh, heavens no. And I know we're used to a certain kind of fighting on this show, but Batman's boxing leaves a lot to be desired. <laughs> well, I think he was concerned because the Riddler is a slight man and he even references the fact that yeah, he's he more that. of a weakling than Robin. Yeah. So maybe he just didn't really want to put the full Bat Force into it. Uh... Batgirl saves him. I had I wished she had jumped into the ring and and um <laughs> clobbered Riddler herself. Yeah. So there's a couple of things in this episode that I really liked. I really enjoyed Alfred disguising himself as Gus. Gus the chimney sweep? Uh, I believe it was Gus the boxing like a trainer. Tr- trainer guy. Yeah. But anyway, like I have to say the makeup work of him and the costuming to get him to be Gus, so much better than when Alfred was his twin brother Egbert from the second season. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty good. Mm. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, we get to see Aunt Harriet again. Uh, yeah. Why do they have Aunt Harriet show up? Well, because she loves a boxing match. But then she just disappears. Well, okay. So the thing is, Madge Blake, who played Aunt Harriet, apparently she was incredibly unwell. Oh. And so she retired from acting. So she appears in this episode. And then there's one more episode the season that she's in. Oh, that's so sad. It is. And the other thing I really liked in the episode was the mole in this episode. Usually they're really just ineffectual. They're just kind of there for window dressing more than anything else. But in this one, like the character actually had her own agency. Like yeah. that side of maybe Nefertiti, uh, King Tut's mole from, I think, the first season of the show. Of course. Like, you know, she was her own person. She was a respected TV sports broadcaster. Yeah, boldface, which is, I think it's Italian or something. Yeah, I think it's Bolfacci. Yeah, she has a midnight sports telecast. Which yeah. I guess was popular in the 60s. Well, Commissioner Gordon's crazy for the show. Who watches sports coverage at midnight? Professional police officers. <sighs> and presumably yeah, right. drunks and, uh, and students, I'm guessing. Mushy Nebuchadnezzar. Yes. Southwestern Asia's unchallenged champion. And also one of the most colorful prize fighters in the world. For instance, Mushy, tell us, just uh, what do you eat? Tamarisk berries, bull, bull, bird eggs and licorice, but uh, only licorice native to my country. What liquids do you drink? Just uh, camel grass juice. What else? Now you, um, you've tried a lot of different kinds of drinks. Like you put any kind of liquid in front of you, it's going down the hatch. That's your reputation at the office. Look, and quite frankly, you get me late at night and you put a glass of camel grass juice. Yeah, so you've had the stuff. Oh, look, I live by the stuff. It sounded very health-oriented, like a wheatgrass type of thing. Mm, That's what I was picturing. Nick, have you ever drunk from a camel before? From the body of a camel? (laughs) Although I suppose this is the grass of the camel. Yeah. Yeah. You're not drinking from a camel's carcass. What kind of morose... That's a children's show. Anyway, apparently it's a stimulant. Yeah, you shouldn't drink too much of a stimulant. Yeah, beware strong stimulants. Gosh, Batman, this camel grass juice is great. Beware of strong stimulants, Robin. What do you think the effects are? Nothing happened as far as I could tell. Well, maybe Batman's been on the camel grass juice a bit because he's seen Robin around and Robin, as we've discussed... Oh, is dead, yeah. ...deceased for quite a while at this point. Yeah, that's right. Oh, that's an excellent theory. I'm really interested to see how this plays out. We should keep building on it episode to episode. I'm sure there's lots of clues everywhere. Nobody realizes it. Um, also in the boxing scene, Batman falls for the oldest boxing trick in the book. The, uh, one arm spins and then he doesn't see the other arm punching him in the face. Sucker punch. I thought there was a bit of misogyny going on with the Riddler talking about what's looser than a thread. What's looser than a thread? A fish? Flying ribbons? A woman's tongue? 
Possibly Batgirls. Oh, yeah, that wasn't nice. And also in the previous episode, um, there was a bit of misogyny with Penguin saying obedience. That is the first wifely virtue. Yeah. It's nasty stuff. Just gross. I thought these are gentlemen. It was a different time. Complicated time. Vietnam War is raging. Yeah. And look, maybe that's where we head to in this conversation this week. So we're watching all these Batman episodes, and these are happening in... We're in 1967 at the moment. The Vietnam War, it's raging on. Yes. So you've got this show, which is like this bright... It feels like it should be a countercultural show, but it's not. Like, it's really playing into a lot of the culture of the moment. It's like Andy Warhol and, like, youth culture, but playing against that at the same time. But you got all this happening on mainstream American TV, and it just seems like it's a complete distraction from some of the horrors that are taking place within American culture at the time. But it's not purely a distraction, because it's one thing if now you're watching Peppa Pig, you don't expect to see a reference to um, Syrian refugee crisis. But in this show, which is a children's show, there's no explicit mentions of the Vietnam War, but there's lots of mentions of dirty hippies. And um, well, Batman did a PSA for the Vietnam War to get people to buy um, government bonds. Mm. But I think just the very existence of this program. So if you look at TV that was happening sort of through the mid 60s, you've got all these shows that are real high concept fantasy programs. And this is mainstream entertainment at the time. So, I mean, these are things like, uh, you know, Bewitched and I Dream of Genie, you've got Batman, you've got Star Trek on. Like, these are kind of the, not quite big shows. I mean, Star Trek was always kind of bubbling away in the background, but Batman was definitely a big thing. Lost in Space, all these big fantasy programs, which kind of play into the idea of uh, either extreme fantasy or the future projection of where America's heading with the idealized idea of the American dream. So, you know, the perfect American family traveling off into space. That's lost in space. You got Batman, which is about these costume guys who are upholding like the civics of which America holds dear, like the idealized America. You got Star Trek, which, as Jerry Seinfeld always joked, kind of felt like some guy's lounge room just traveling through space. But it's kind of like that. It's like these idealized Americans of whom have come together, albeit with communist ideology uh, funding their entire um, society. But it still felt like that's kind of the future ideal of what America offers. But did those shows... Did they make sly references to what was going on, the socio-political upheaval of the time? Look, I mean, I, I have difficulty answering that question. Like this show is on a side. Batman is on Nixon's side. Look, any TV show, any movie, any bit of culture always has politics embedded into it, whether it's overt or not. Like there's always a political yeah, so that's message and a viewpoint. Star Trek, I'm sure it was the first um, interracial kiss on TV, right? Yeah, that I mean, kind of thing. I would call Star Trek to be a very left progressive TV show. Yeah. Just in that, as you said, first interracial kiss, they really are dealing with communist ideology as the yeah. backbone of that organization. It's about diversity. It's about people coming together for the greater good, uh, regardless of who you are, gender, ethnicity. Right. I mean, you've got a Russian character on there. You've got Scottish. a Japanese character, Scottish. Like it's all... It's a melting pot of civilization. On it's the probably groundbreaking price. for the time, I would imagine. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. I mean, all these shows kind of are groundbreaking to a certain degree. I mean, something like Bewitch is a lot more traditional, but you've also got a female character who has her own sense of agency and strength and really is driving the narrative of that program in a way that her ineffective husband isn't. Yeah. Like her husband's a hindrance to her in that entire show. So going forward... I think it would be important to contextualize this show with the Vietnam War and what was going on while Americans were enjoying this show in declining numbers, I suppose. 
but uh, and also just the huge political, cultural shift that was going on. No, you're right. Because, I mean, this show takes place at a very specific time in American culture. Yeah. And it's kind of what the show isn't saying at the same time as being overtly reflecting the values of what it is saying. Yeah. There's just something very unique about this show. And you and I have been feeling it a bit over the last episodes of season two leading into season three. Like, it just kind of feels so much more like there's something taking place that the show's not acknowledging. Yeah. Absolutely. And it seems funny to say this, like for a silly show about guys running out of costumes. A great thesis would be um, the Vietnam War is the invisible character in uh, 1966 Batman. <laughs> I'm writing it. Nick, we like to wind out every episode of Batman Land with a discussion about what we've learned from the Bright Knight himself. Across these two episodes, what did you learn? I mean, obviously a lot, but if you could distill it down to one thing. I learned, courtesy of Batgirl, a very welcome addition to the show, mm. that crime fighting is a serious business, but we might as well get a few laughs. I couldn't agree more. Look, it's how I approach my day to day. You're always laughing. You know what? I learned two things this week. The first thing, and weirdly, I've never really learned anything from Robin before, but this week, very valuable statement that highway safety is every citizen's responsibility. Yep. Uh, the other thing I learned, and this is from William Dozier, the narrator coming into the beginning of episode two of this, Night, it's the cloak for sinners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I also noticed that. Um, I'm not sure what kind of sinning he was referring to. What do you think? Oh, look, I think we all know what's going on. Here's the thing. We often hear conversations about daylight savings and the value of daylight savings. But it should be the name of a superhero. Well, there are some states where you don't have daylight savings, like Queensland, for example, doesn't. And they're always banging on about how much they want daylight savings. They want it. Yeah, like they want more daytime. Oh. I say, who wants daylight savings? I say, bring on more nighttime, because all the fun stuff happens at nighttime, Nick. Yeah, sure. Well, as the great rap group Houdini said, the freaks come out at night. On that note, that brings us to the end of another Batman land. Nick Bassine, people probably have some commentary that would like to run past your is how do they do that um you can find me on twitter at manly art of self-defense dot whiz increasingly i'm not sure you know how twitter handle works well it's part of the intellectual dark web i uh you can also find me at at, at nick Basine. People can find me on the dark web. I've got some things I'd like to sell you. But in addition to that, you can find me on Twitter at the Dan Barrett. If you're enjoying Batman Land, leave the hashtag Batman Land. Helps people track the conversation, the meaty, in-depth conversation about Batman Land, which rages every week, like the Vietnam Much War. Much like the Vietnam War, yeah. Mm. If people are enjoying this podcast, there's a couple of other podcasts you might want to check out. Uh, for example, there's a little thing I like called The Playlist. Nick Bassine, what happens on The Playlist? Well, Dan, it's in a frank and open cultural conversation. Fantastic. And by that, I assume that you're really talking about the discussion of movies and TV shows. That's right. As framed by yourself and Batman Land friend Fiona Williams. Yeah, and you talk about movies and TV shows. That's right. It's what the hottest stuff that people are talking about. Come on by. Say hello. Why not? Indeed. Nick Bassine, have you listened to the Handmaid's Tale podcast, Eyes on Gilead? I have, every episode. So as you'd be well aware, this is a weekly discussion about The Handmaid's Tale and really going in deep on that show, which I've been producing that one, so I've been listening to the conversation every week. I've learned a lot about that TV show, and I'd say well worthwhile listening to that. So Nick, that brings us to the end of another Batman Land. We'll be back next week talking about The Siren and another villain. Oh, yep, that's right. John yeah. Collins is coming back. Very exciting. Looking forward to it. Anyway, we'll be back. Same Batman Land time, same Batman Land channel. Until next time. Bye.